If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by City Hall reporter Joshua Fector. Investigative reporter Brian Chasnoff. Second try. <laughs> yeah, our second take went better. Um, <laughs> this is going to be our last uh, podcast of 2020. We're recording this on Monday, uh, December 28th. And um, so we're going to use this uh, this week's podcast as kind of a, a wrap-up of 2020. And we're each going to talk a little bit about what we thought were the, you know, the biggest stories that we worked on this year. And um, I think before we do that, I mean, the obvious point to make is that um, the COVID-19 pandemic sort of um, dominated, you know, everything this year. And there, I don't think there was a, a major story this year that was not colored in some way by the pandemic. I mean, even if we're talking about economic issues, uh, election issues, certainly public health, um, you know, even I think if we talk about the Black Lives Matter protests that happened in the late spring and early summer in, in San Antonio and other cities, even they were affected to some degree by the pandemic. You had people wearing masks and having to to uh, take the public health um, risks into account. And and so it, it factored into everything. So um, anyway, I'm going to start with you, Josh, and just talk a little bit about what, you know, what stood out to you as far as the the, the stuff that you were covering this year. I was really hoping you would have Brian go first. Um, no, the, um, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, like my, uh, you know, my big thing that, you know, I watched this year and I feel like I, I, I devoted a lot of time to was, you know, just watching simply how, you know, Mayor Ron Nuremberg sort of navigated uh, this whole crisis. Um, you know, obviously, you know, last year he, uh, you know, he he fought sort of bitterly to 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 hold on to a seat, um, you know, escaped, you know, runoff very narrowly. Um, so, you know, I, I spent a lot of my time just sort of like watching how he sort of navigated this. And, you know, he had to he started off the year thinking, you know, this was going to be the year of a big sort of transportation initiative. Uh, uh, he remembered this year he. He embarked, I guess it was a little bit before um, this year, uh, he embarked on this uh, push to reallocate the sales tax that goes from and that goes towards the Edwards Aquifer and uh, linear parks to uh, transit initiative. Uh, the pandemic, you know, squabbled all that, you know, they had to reset. Um, and, you know, you you saw him sort of take a look at this and go, OK, how can we, you know, take this crisis and turn it into sort of like a long term kind of opportunity uh, that, uh, you know, sort of like a long term sort of project to 
improve the city's economic standing, the you know people's economic standing, and you know obviously he pivots to uh, the the workforce initiative, which passed overwhelmingly at the November ballot box. Um, but but you also see him, you know, see uh, sort of attract uh, sort of flack from from sort of these you know. Uh, these these flanks on on council you see uh clayton perry and 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 roberto trevino uh say that he's worried too much about sort of this long-term kind of approach uh you see a little bit from his uh progressive flank uh kind of say you know this is this is kind of a a business friendly sort of initiative Mm -hmm. Uh, you saw him draw flack from environmentalists who were who are upset with uh, the fact that he was, uh, in their eyes, sort of jeopardizing uh, the, the funding of the Edwards Aquifer Protection. You saw him realign himself with sort of business interests. Um, and, you know, it's, you saw him, you know, uh, you know over the summer uh, take a, you know, go out onto the Bear County Courthouse um, steps and, and you know, kind of align himself a little bit with the, the Black Lives Matter protests, and and say, hey, look, if I don't, if we don't deliver on police reform, hold me accountable. Um, and then the city council passes a budget that that keeps you know uh, police funding pretty much as is, um, uh, you know, angering a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so a lot of it is is you kind of you you, you see him you know, sort of gain a little bit more, uh, you know, status and, you know, sort of like authority with, with the pandemic response itself. You see that in sort of the Bearfax polling, uh, but you also see him kind of behaving in ways that he's done, th- you know, throughout his term, you know, the pandemic notwithstanding, which is kind of like, you know, sometimes, you know, able to please some allies and other times angering them. You know, he's had a very fraught relationship with the the business community over his tenure. They were on board with the workforce development. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a, a sense of sort of, you know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't have allies in, in, in the same way that I think, and that I think, you know, other mayors might, um, right. you know, he, he basically like figures out, you know, what he thinks the needs are and he kind of shifts toward that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, that's, it's a really good point. Cause I think when, when Julian Castro is mayor, I mean, I think the, it was fair to say that for that five year period, I mean, he had just solid support among progressive voters in this, in the city. I mean, I, I just think they were, they were with, I think there were very few people who, who, um, on the, on the, on the political left who were not strong advocates for what he was doing. I think with Nuremberg, you tend to find, you know, uh, more of a, a, of a, it's more of a mixed bag. I think there's some disagreement, uh, even among progressives, uh, about his approach and, you know, maybe some frustration. Certainly they might, would prefer him to say a Greg Brockhaus if, if, if that, um, rematch happens in 2021. But yeah, I think that, 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 that that's, it's really true. What, what's interesting to me too, is that he was Nuremberg was able to have big success with these three propositions that that were on the November ballot, but it was really it it kind of all fell together uh, without there wasn't really necessarily the plan. I mean, he as you said, he did not plan on, on workforce development at the beginning of the year. That was something that that was a, a reboot that he made because of the pandemic. He did not plan on pre K for a say being on the November ballot. He wanted it on on the May ballot, so it would be set apart from everything else. 
to uh, increase its chances of success. And then because of the pandemic and, and election, uh, the timing of the election being changed, it was forced onto the November ballot. And then he didn't really want the uh, the public transit uh, proposition, you know, al- although he had supported it at the beginning of the year, um, by the time we got to the summer, it was not something that he really favored, but he was with pressure coming from the VIA board, he was, uh, uh, you know, able to work out a compromise where uh, the public transit funding would wait a few years till after the workforce development, uh, you know, uh, expired. So it was, it was, it was, it, it, it fell together in a really positive way. He had great success in the election, but there were all kinds of, uh, there was all kinds of potential for, (laughs) for disaster along the way. It seemed like, you know, yeah, and you know the 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 other thing that I, that I'm thinking about, you know, is uh, you know you you think about sort of that that sort of Greg Brockhouse right that exists in San Antonio, um, and then you look at then you look at the map of you know how the props uh, how people voted on the props, um, and you know this was. I mean, there were seven precincts, seven neighborhoods that where, you know, Prop B got, you know, fewer votes than, uh, you know, where more people voted against it. Um, so does that like indicate like sort of cross cross partisan lines appeal? I mean, obviously, you know, it's a nonpartisan seat, but, you know, let's let's be real about this yeah. in terms of of like, you know, liberal conservative crossover. And, and it seems like, you know, uh, you know, prop B, you can't get there without conservatives on board as well. Um, you know, kind of given sort of the geographic position of the city. So I, you know, the, the thing that I'm going to be watching that we're going to be watching for in the next six months is like, OK, does it does does that goodwill that he's you know achieved during the pandemic uh carry over into you know may or was it all kind of spent on yeah. on on november right hey brian you know you did so many great stories in 2020 i mean you, uh, on the the public health crisis on the issue of police reform uh, on aquifer protection uh, what what stood out to you as far as the stuff that you covered in 2020 well i mean thanks gilbert i appreciate that i, I think the you know the pandemic obviously was front of mind for me i mean it it uh, dominated my daily life even away from work and so right. the, the stories that i did on that just felt more urgent. Um, of course, police reform was was also up there. But I think um, uh, probably the the stories that stood out for me the most as I look back on the year were uh, sort of lifting the the curtain on Metro Health. And Josh, you you helped me out with one right. of these. Eh. Uh, that was a big story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I want to preface this by saying that uh, you know I, I you know I. I wrote some critical articles about Metro Health this past year, but obviously the work they do is uh, extremely difficult. Uh, and this was in many ways an impossible situation for local health officials across the country. Um, so, uh, and you know, these, these folks on the local level, they, they work tirelessly to, uh, to protect everyone's health. But that being said, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. There was some dysfunction that came up over the year, and I think that we we really realized this 
for the first time when, when we saw uh, in June that first surge really hit San Antonio. Um, and, uh, just this, this sort of alarm, uh, that spread throughout Metro health that there, there simply weren't enough contact tracers to handle the number of cases. And so, um, at that point in June, there were only 25, uh, investigators working. Mm -hmm. And And of course these are people who, uh, call folks who test positive, uh, collect their, uh, you know, determine their close contacts and then try to reach out to the the contacts to warn them to isolate and get tested. Uh, a critical response to, in any pandemic. In June, there were only 25, despite the fact that uh, a, 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 a Metro Health working group had, uh, they, they had uh, recommended 175 hmm. investigators. And so um, th- they're just... They weren't. Metro Health wasn't quite on the ball, and they they, they weren't quite uh, following that recommendation to ramp up case investigators, and it kind of uh, caught them flat-footed. Um, and then I think uh, so. We so Josh and I actually wrote a story together where we got our hands on thousands of emails, uh, kind of documenting and chronicling this alarm and how they dealt with it. You know, they started offering people overtime to come in from other other uh, sections of Metro Health, uh, you know, people who were working in other like immunizations and so forth uh, to, to come and work as case investigators to try to get a handle on the, the surge. And then I think the other one that really stood out for me was this, uh, it, it was another situation where uh, Metro Health didn't seem to be quite on the ball with uh, antigen tests. Yeah. These are the, the rapid tests that uh, test for proteins in, in your nose and throat, uh, and and they can be uh, you can get the results within within minutes. Um, and uh, Metro Health was not counting or investigating positive antigen tests uh, for folks who who tested positive on those tests but didn't have any symptoms. Um, and so I I wrote a series of stories on that, and the mm. the upshot eventually was that they they changed the policy to actually count and trace those cases. Uh, but it took a while. And as the pandemic played out, we also had a, a, a Metro health director who hadn't really been here very long, who ended up leaving. Um, and that was, uh, I mean, based on, on the reporting that you and, and Josh did, I mean, this was, uh, there was, there was some real conflict happening within, within the department. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote a profile of, of Don Emmerich actually in, I think it was in May, and her story was interesting because she was hired shortly before the pandemic began and started shortly after everything, you know, the, uh, everything hit the fan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so it was just, she was sort of thrown into this pressure cooker situation and I shadowed her for a day and, um, turns out she was having a very bitter conflict with, uh, assistant city manager, Colleen Bridger, mm-hmm. um, they did not get along. They didn't agree on a lot of things. Um, Emmerich resigned eventually, which was, she resigned actually right as cases were surging. Mm. And it was, it was kind of a jarring uh, yeah. situation for a lot of people to see the Metro health director resign at that, at that time. Um, and then, uh, right. And, you know, we had Bridger step in and, and she had some conflicts herself with uh, some, uh, some epidemiologists and some folks in the community who were, uh, 
recommending things in these working groups, such as what I just said about testing folks who test positive, or I'm sorry, counting and tracing folks who test positive on antigen tests, but who don't have symptoms. And it's a huge story because it really seems to me, I mean, when, when the story of the U.S., uh, of the national response to the pandemic is is written the the way the the the, the country as a whole uh, i think failed to kind of uh, kind of get its hands around the the contact tracing part of this i mean i think that was there was probably a period when it would have been possible and uh be, and before the case numbers started really exploding and um and uh, I, I don't know how how successful it could have been, but it certainly it feels like um, with the, there, I'm sure there's some communities where this th- th- this was successful, but it feels like um, that was a big failure in the United States, the ability to to handle contact tracing and to be able to keep to slow the spread of this. Yeah, um, and I mean, part way. of the problem was that a lot a lot of people weren't uh, even responding to the the calls. Right. Um, and there was there's there was no way to really force people to cooperate. Um, or, uh, or even when they did talk to these people and ask them to isolate and get tested, there, there was no way to (laughs) make them do that. And, and another thing about the, uh, about the, uh, sort of the, the leadership drama at Metro health is that, you know, obviously there's been sort of this, this exodus of, of, uh, not, not just here, but also, you know, across the country of, you know, leaders of health departments who have, who have quit during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, the, the thing that, that strikes me is that, you know, San Antonio for most of the pandemic now has been without sort of permanent leadership and they've had to sort of, mm-hmm. you know, you know, rework and refigure out like, you know, how they're going to, you know, who's in charge, basically, you know, we, um, for a lot of that time, Colleen Bridger was basically doing three jobs. You know, she was assistant city manager overseeing a bunch of departments and, you know, one of them being Metro health, which she was in charge of and, you know, COVID response being sort of separate from that. Um, you know, there was, you know, and and she keeps having to sort of, uh, you know, she she had said before um, the summer surge that that she was going to leave uh, the city and become a consultant. She's put that off a number of times now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, th- you know, at one point, you know, there was there was somebody who was who was basically going to be the metro health director, uh, Dr. Sandra Guerra. She was she uh, uh, she had to. She said that she couldn't do it uh, basically, and so. Colleen Bridger had to had to step in again, and and the city is still on sort of its its hunt for for a permanent uh, replacement. But yeah, it's you know to have you know basically an, an entire pandemic where you know most of the time there's there's no permanent leadership at the top of Metro Health is, is interesting. Yep, that's absolutely right. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about. Um, election issues, which is what I tended to focus on uh, the most in 2020 and and how the pandemic affected that. And uh, because of concerns about the safety of, of voting in person, we, we saw a surge across the country in uh, mail-in voting. And uh, we had also had a push locally from uh, County Commissioner Justin Rodriguez to make that, to open up the voting process uh, they created some mega centers within the county, including the AT and T center, for people to vote. Um, 
and you start to have some some partisan conflict uh, within the state. Uh, for example, with Harris County, uh, they wanted to uh, use all their satellite elections offices as places where people could drop off their mail ballots if they wanted to drop them off in person. And uh, Governor Greg Abbott, you know, put the 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 halt on that and said they could only use uh, they could only use one office. Uh, for the entire county. So these kinds of uh, conflicts, um, you know, it played out during the year. But I think the thing that that we, uh, probably the big story was that Democrats looked at 2020 in Texas as this is going to be a watershed year. This could be a year when uh, Democrats are able to flip the Texas House, gain some congressional seats, possibly w- uh, have their presidential candidate, Joe Biden, carry the state for the first time, uh, you know, have a Democrat for the first time in 44 years, carry the state of Texas. And those things didn't happen. And it, it Democrats were able to, to do what they hoped and expected to do, which was, you know, really, uh, they had a, a very successful turnout effort. And if we look at um, the turnout numbers in recent years, you had Hillary Clinton in 2016, who lost by 9% to Donald Trump, got 3.9 million votes. In 2018, Beto O'Rourke, who, uh, came very close to winning a U.S. Senate election, got a little bit more than 4 million votes. Um, so in the 2016 presidential election, we had just under 9 million people voting. This year, we had more than 11.3 million. So and a lot of that was was you know an increased Democratic turnout. Joe Biden got uh, about 5.26 million votes in Texas this year. So this is about you know one-third more than Hillary Clinton got four years ago. The problem for Democrats in Texas and in many parts of the country was that Republicans were able to match that surge in, in turnout. So while Joe Biden was getting a record for for any Democrat in Texas, 5.26 million, Donald Trump was getting about 5.9 million. And this hap- this played out a lot. And and the what happened in the presidential election with Trump losing to Biden was this was kind of the one of the most prominent exception to that. In that case, Republicans were able to really increase their turnout. Trump got 12 million more votes than he got four years ago, but Democrats were able to step it up way beyond that. And uh, in in Texas and in a lot of the congressional races across the country, that didn't happen. Republicans were able to match or even exceed that Democratic surge. And it really affected a couple of districts that include San Antonio. U.S. District 23 it's been a swing district for a long time. Will heard the Republican was stepping down. Democrats thought we've got it this year, and Democratic nominee Gina Ortiz Jones, because of the pandemic, uh, ran basically a virtual campaign. She did uh, these uh, virtual town halls. Uh, did not do a lot of in-person campaigning. Her Republican opponent Tony Gonzalez, a former Navy cryptologist, went out across the district and campaigned in person very aggressively and and won by a comfortable margin. That was, I think, a big upset. And also in U.S. District 21, which includes uh, Austin, parts of the Hill Country, and and uh, northern San Antonio, Chip Roy, the Republican, uh, was a first-term uh, congressman, was seen as vulnerable in that district, and was challenged by a former Fort Worth state senator, Wendy Davis. And um, Chip Roy won that one also pretty comfortably. And I think that the, the hope that Democrats had that they were going to see this a surge that was going to sweep Democrats into office didn't happen. And they gained, there was no net gain for Democrats in the Texas house. It will continue to be controlled by Republicans. So I think this is going to be, uh, there's going to be a lot of 
soul searching among Democrats. But I think it's important that when they look at the story, the failure was not it was not a failure among Democrats to, to turn out the votes, which has been a problem in the past. They've just they've they've always said we've got the votes here in Texas. We're just not getting people. But we're a non we're not a Republican state. As Beth O'Rourke says, we're a we're a non voting state. Democrats came out this year, but Republicans were able to 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 match or exceed them uh, where it mattered. And I think that that's going to make Democrats think a little bit about um, when the turnout numbers go up, it's not necessarily always going to benefit Democrats and, and that Republicans, at least for now, seem to have within the state the numbers to continue um, to, con- to continue controlling the state, you know, at the. Um, certainly at the legislative level and in, in the statewide races. So I think that's, that's going to, it's been a big disappointment uh, for Democrats. And I think that's something that they're going to have to have to evaluate and figure out what they do about that going forward. Yeah. So something that, that I noticed, and I wrote about this a week or so ago, uh, you know, you look at, you know, Biden's performance in, you know, Bear County, and you see him making inroads in a lot of places that are traditionally conservative. You know, he right. he, he does he does what like he wins Alamo Heights by eight percentage points. You know, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton won by like four votes last time. Like, uh, you know, and, you know, he he did better than Trump in like Steve Allison's district. He does better than than Trump in uh, Precinct 3, which is, um, you know, pretty conservative or reliably conservative. Uh, you know, he does well in the, uh, you know, he, he does better than Trump in, you know, the parts of Bear County that include, you know, Texas 21st and Texas 23rd congressional districts. He, right. he outperforms Trump in all of these conservative areas. Um, but, you know, then, then you see these neighborhoods, these votes flip back for Steve Allison, Trish DeBerry. Uh, you know, Chip Roy, Tony Gonzalez, you know, what you're seeing is that, you know, Biden was able to, to, to sway a bunch of, um, a couple thousand, you know, Trump voters or, or, you know, Republicans who were disaffected with Trump, I should say, uh, those are two different things, (laughs) 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 but the, uh, the, um, but the thing is, is that, you know, those, those folks weren't looking to punish people down ballot for that. Right. So, That's you know, right. if you're Steve, so if you're Steve Allison, you benefit from turning out Trump's base, you know, the, that, that core Republican base, you know, who's going to vote Republican straight ticket. And, you know, they also, be, he also benefits and I'm using Steve Allison here, but he also benefits from, from, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the Biden Republicans who, who the yeah. Republicans do were sick of Trump, but, you know, were are still Republicans. Yeah. And I think that's, that's maybe the encouraging thing for Republicans in Texas and in other parts of the country in that Trump's, uh, Trump's coattails, uh, were not very strong. And, um, there was a fear among Republicans that, uh, his, he had these toxic coattails that were going to, you know, just bring down a lot of Republicans in, in the, uh, you know, close to two months since election day, uh, you know, Trump has vented about his loss and, and said it was, you know, the result of fraud. And among other things, he has expressed anger at fellow Republicans like Mitch McConnell, who have not, uh, he 
have, you know, Mitch McConnell has now declared Joe Biden to be president elect. And so Trump has attacked some of these people and said, well, you know, I helped get him reelected. I saved them. And that's his perception. But I think the reality is probably that, you know, they, they all, uh, a lot of these Republicans across the country outperformed Trump and they were able to win because as you said, Josh, uh, there were conservatives who said, I'm not happy with Trump. I've had enough of him. But down ballot, I'm going to vote for the Republicans. So uh, he he believes that he saved them. But I think the reality is, was that in many cases, they were able to survive, um, you know, his uh, his toxicity in, in some of these some of these places, um, so, which I think some Republicans would look at that and think that it would be encouraging for a, a post Trump Republican future that that they would be able to say uh, enough Republican uh, or conservative voters were, were willing to vote down ballot for Republicans despite their uh, issues with Trump. So that's going to be the thing to see. And I think, uh, again, as I said, there are things happening, as you pointed out in, in Texas. I mean, it, it was certainly the urban areas of the state have become solidly blue. Uh, Bear County, I've, I've just seen over the past 10 years how it went from a leaning blue to a really very solidly blue uh, county. And I, I think Biden won like nine out of 10 San Antonio city council districts. So it's, it's, we, we've seen uh, this shift happening over the past few years. There is something happening in the state, but at least for now, Republicans have been able to match that with, with increased turnout in their, their strong areas. So that's going to be the, I think that the issue going forward to, to see what happens with the state. I think we're going to wrap things up there and uh, want to thank you all for listening to us the, this year. And um, we hope you all have a happy new year, wishing that everyone has a, a better and safer 2021 than we had in 2020. And uh, thank you all for listening. Take care, everybody.